Well, this last week was the Shepherds Conference, and uh, most of the staff were gone over at Grace Community Church listening to John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul and and uh, just getting our heads uh, stuffed full. Al Muller of Southern Seminary was there and went to a lot of classes. And uh, one of the neat things about that time is we, a whole bunch of pastors come from pretty much all around the world to go to the Shepherds Conference so we can catch up. And uh, one of the guests that was staying in our house was Pastor Brad Arnold. Pastor uh, Brad and uh, his wife Kim Pastor Nampa Bible Church in Idaho. That is the second church that I helped plant when I was there. And after that church got uh, big enough to support their own pastor, we stole uh, Brad from Texas. So he's a Texan. And uh, and so don't make fun of his accent. He hasn't been able to get rid of it yet. Um, it's still lingering. Uh, but we put up with him anyways. He's, uh, he's, he has four children. And uh, he's uh, catching all the fish and uh, hunting all the elk that uh, I left behind. And so he is here this morning and uh, to preach the word. Come on up, Brad. Well, good morning. <clears throat> he didn't leave very many fish and elk behind, or at least I haven't found them yet. I do bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters in Christ at Nampa Bible Church, the second most gracious and hospitable congregation in the West. Almost every year we have an opportunity, either a Shepherd's Conference or Winterham or some other such thing like a men's retreat to bring uh, what turns out normally to be some kind of bus load or van load full of people. And uh, every time you receive us with open arms into your homes and you feed us and uh, clothe us and uh, shuttle us around all over this place. And we really do want to say thank you for, for that, for your hospitality and generosity. The fellowship that we enjoy with you and your homes is sort of the uh, icing on the cake for the opportunities that we have when we come here and to be able to worship with you this morning is kind of the cherry on top of that. So we are really privileged to be here. I did bring my wife this time. Every year when I've come, I've thought, ah, this is just not right. I get to come here and have all this fun and soak all this in. And she's back home with the kids. This has got to be changed. So uh, finally stuck her in a suitcase and brought her along. So <laughs> Nampa Bible Church will be nine years old in May. And uh, God just continues to amaze us with his blessing, the people that he continues to bring there to be a part of that family of worshipers is just a thrill to me and my heart. Kim and I were, were not born in Idaho, but uh, we got there as quick as we could and uh, thoroughly love living in, in that area and really just counted a privilege uh, to belong to such a wonderful church family that we do. Since we are transplanted to Idaho... Um, all of our extended family, both mine and Kim's, and of course that of our children, live back in Texas, north and north northeast Texas, which is uh, only about 1,647 miles away from our little home in Nampa. We're not counting, but that's how far it is. Needless to say, over the eight years that we've been in Nampa, we have made a few road trips, uh, especially in light of the fact that our four children are the favored grandchildren. We uh, have to make a trek every now and then back that way. And, of course, as you know, every, favorite, every child's favorite question as soon as you pull out of the driveway and begin a road trip like that 
is how long? How long is it going to take? How long till we get there? And uh, I remember asking that same question when I was a child. We uh, would load up. My, my dad and mom had a 1964 Volkswagen and four children. And we would pile in that thing like sardines. They would usually leave early in the morning and just kind of throw us in there while we were still asleep, you know, and unconscious. And then we would take off for a three-hour trip to grandma's. For my children, the trip is 28 hours. So it's not unreasonable for a child to ask, how long? And I really want to talk with you about that this morning. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm 13. I think Psalm 13 should perhaps be a favorite of all children of God, young and old, because Psalm 13 could well be called the how long psalm. This particular chapter in the Word of God highlights what I love best about the entire book of Psalms, frank and forthright honesty with God. The Psalms were written by saints who were as genuine as godly. They were real people living in a real world with real problems, real enemies, real pain, real frustrations, trying to make sense of all of that in light of the reality of their omniscient, omnipotent, benevolent God. And the result is, to our benefit, a collection of 150 of the most intense and personal prayers ever prayed by any human being on planet Earth. Most of them are written from light hearts filled with joyous praise, but some of them are written from heavy hearts filled with grievous pain. Most of the Psalms are punctuated with an exclamation mark, but every now and then some of them are punctuated with a question mark. And I think that's fitting because that's reality. That's how life is. So when I read such Psalms as Psalm 13, I thank God that there are Psalms like this, because there is a precedent for approaching God with honest questions like, why? Or in this case, how long? That assures me that I'm not out of line when, when I do it. Such Psalms also remind me that God does not want us to be phony and insincere in our relationship with him, not just to go through the formalities of some kind of meaningless religion. God is willing to enter our world at the level of our need. He invites us to relate to him from there. And in this psalm, it's as if God would say to us, I am real, you be real with me. Do not treat me like I only exist on Sunday morning and cannot relate to your Monday through Saturday life. Come to me, pour out your heart in honesty to me. Speak what is on your mind. I'm not afraid of that. I won't be intimidated by your questions. I'm, I have no need to be defensive. You have complaints. You have concerns. You have anxieties. Voice them. I will not bite your head off. I love to hear you pray. I'm big enough to handle it. Psalm 13 gives us the boldness to, to be honest and to raise our hand in class and ask the question that everyone else in the class is afraid or embarrassed to ask. Now, this 13th Psalm was written by David, and that's about all we know about it. 
We do not know the background. We do not know which particular difficulty he was facing at the time. We don't know where he was or what specifically was troubling him. But we do know that the Bible says David is, was a man after what? God's own heart. And I think Psalms like this sort of reveal why God had that testimony of him. Because whatever else David was or was not, David was most definitely this. He was genuinely honest before God. Andy Jackson said of the Tennessee volunteers, when they volunteer to fight, they fight. When they volunteer to go home, they go home. And that was David. Everything David did was just full throttle, whether he was sinning or worshiping. Full throttle, whether he was praising God or questioning God, fighting or confessing. And here, like a weary, thirsty child in the backseat of a car 1,600 miles from home, he was not afraid to ask, how long, Lord? And I think we need to listen in and learn from his prayer. So follow along as I read Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Enlighten my eyes or I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my adversaries will rejoice when I'm shaken. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. I don't know about you, but I personally can relate to this prayer. For one thing, it's short. But beyond that, I think that anyone who knows God can identify with what David is going through here for at least a couple of reasons. First, because God does not always do things as quickly as we would like. Second, because God does not always seem to be as near as we would like to feel that he is. If you haven't experienced that yet, keep going. The story is told of a man who once found a cocoon of a butterfly. One day, a, a small opening appeared in that cocoon, and so he sat and watched for several hours as the butterfly struggled to force its way out of that tiny opening. And then it seemed sort of all of a sudden to stop making any progress. It appeared as if maybe it had gotten as far as it could and it could go no further. And so the man decided to help the butterfly. He took a pair of scissors and snipped away the remaining bit of cocoon. And the butterfly then easily emerged. But it also emerged with a very swollen body and had small shriveled wings. And the man continued to watch the butterfly because he expected that at any moment it would start to change. That it's wings would expand and grow and that its body would contract and get smaller, but that never happened. In fact, the butterfly spent the rest of its puny little miserable kind of life crawling around with a swollen body and shriveled wings and never able to fly. 
What that man in his good intention and haste did not realize is that the restricting cocoon and the struggle required for the butterfly to free itself and force its way through that opening was all a part of God's design and God's way of forcing fluid from the body of that butterfly out into its wings so that it would be ready for flight once it achieved its freedom from that cocoon. Sometimes we may feel as though our creator has just kind of left us to struggle alone in our cocoon. I would submit to you that that is not all bad. Because through such struggles, God is in the process of transforming us. And sometimes we would prefer to short-circuit that process, but always to our own detriment. This psalm illustrates that process. It illustrates the metamorphosis that takes place as God moves us from turmoil to trust to triumph. But not in a cocoon, in this case, in our closet in prayer. David here literally fights and crawls his way out of a sort of a state of depression and despair through prayer. And the process is evident in three stages corresponding to the three stanzas of this psalm. And I just feel compelled and drawn to this chapter this morning. I preached through the many of the psalms a, a couple of summers ago just to sort of hit some of the highlights in in the book of Psalms, and I find them so vital in my own personal life and such a tremendous tool in shepherding the people of God. And I thought, well, since I'm going to be at a shepherd's conference all week, I should probably pick something related to shepherding to, to preach. And so I chose this chapter because I think what happens is often in the Christian circles in which we run we are very good at warning people to stay out of the pit of despair. But we're not always very effective at telling them what to do when they are in there. Our ministries excel at keeping them out, but are usually at a loss for getting them out. And I think we need to learn from this psalm that the stages of spiritual recovery, not only for our own sakes, but also for the sake of those to whom we minister. Let's look at these three stages together. The first is what I would call rock bottom. In verses 1 and 2, David gives honest expressions of his despair. He asks four times, how long? And these questions express such deep anxiety and anguish of soul that this psalm has been called the howling psalm. Because David is howling from the depths of his soul to God. Together, these four questions may be likened to the four walls of David's dungeon of despair. Notice them. First of all, David felt forgotten. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Like Jonah, three days in the belly of a fish, or Joseph, two years in Potiphar's jail, 
or Jacob, 20 years serving Laban, or Moses, 40 years shepherding Jethro's flock on the backside of nowhere. David felt as though the whole world was passing him by and God was for some reason totally oblivious to him and his predicament. The storm had settled in over him and stayed, and he was locked in the cellar all alone. It's amazing, isn't it, how time flies when we're having fun, but never when we're not. Winter comes on horseback, someone said, and leaves on foot. And that's how David feels at this time, this trying time, which can be as lonely as they are long. Secondly, David felt rejected. He says, how long will you hide your face from me? Now, as you know, throughout the Old Testament, the face of God always represented his favor, his kindness. For God's face to be toward you is for God's favor to be toward you. That's reflected in the benediction of Aaron in Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. For God's face to shine or smile upon you was, was to be in the chief place of blessing. And yet here, David, the man after God's own heart, feels as though God's face is turned against him. That he's in the place not of blessing but of cursing. And he can't understand why he hadn't done anything wrong. He was simply being wronged. Why was God hiding from him? And so this was an honest expression of despair. Third, David felt depressed. How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? The question he's asking here is, how long will I have to agonize over this and console myself? He had been reduced to that, reduced to talking to himself, which almost always leads to tears. And he was running out of tears. He was running out of convincing things to say to himself. He had maxed out his heart's capacity for grief, and yet relief was still nowhere in sight. If you have read much of the Psalms, you know how common this condition of loneliness and depression was for David. On one occasion in Psalm 42.3, he said, My tears have been my food day and night. I mean, have you ever experienced that? In Psalm 40 or Psalm 80, verse 4, he, he said, O Lord, God of hosts, how long wilt thou be angry with the prayer of thy people? You've fed them with the bread of tears. And you've made them to drink tears in large measure. In Psalm 102, 8, my enemies have reproached me all day long. Those who deride me have used my name as a curse. I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping. Sometimes I think, you know, we just get the wrong picture of what godliness is like. We, we know someone who's really godly and the only part of their life that we see is, is the part above the water. And we don't see all the dog paddling going on underneath in their life. 
We think the Christian life is, is somehow supposed to be some kind of a walk on the beach. And then we feel cheated when the sand is too hot. And yet, if we look realistically at the scripture and look realistically at the saints of God throughout history, the history of the church, we find that those most faithful and most useful to God are always those who knew tremendous pain and loneliness, sometimes even great depression. Certainly, they were not unfamiliar with tears. And particularly, I think, do we find that those with greatest responsibility and those in highest positions of service know what it is to feel naked and alone, as David does here. Everyone, for instance, knows Charles Haddon Spurgeon as the prince of preachers, that great expositor. And yet few people know of the anguish and adversity that he experienced really throughout his ministry. One biographer wrote, poisonous slander, recurring depression, debilitating gout, kidney disease. Spurgeon suffered them all. Once Spurgeon wrote, down on my knees have I often fallen with the hot sweat rising from my brow under some fresh slander poured upon me. In an agony of grief, my heart has been well nigh broken. Another time he said, my deacons know well enough how when I first preached at Exeter Hall, there was scarcely ever an occasion in which they left me alone for 10 minutes before the service, but they would find me in a most fearful state of sickness produced by that tremendous thought of my solemn responsibility. You don't think of Spurgeon that way, do you? If you've cried yourself to sleep over some great burden that you've been called to bear, over some cruel critic that you've been forced to endure, some messenger of Satan sent to buffet you, or some overwhelming responsibility for which you've just felt totally inadequate, you're in good company. Very good company. Those are common experiences among the saints, and to be deprived of them is to never earn your wings. Basically. Fourthly, we notice that David felt defeated. He says, how long will my enemy be exalted over me? Now, we don't know which particular enemy he's referring to on this occasion. We do know that in jealousy, Saul tracked and hunted David down for years. We know in rebellion, His own sons sought to ambush him and overthrow his throne. We know that in war, the vicious Philistines often had him surrounded. But we don't know which particular occasion this is. I guess this is the kind of thing you would expect for the man who, as a boy, killed lions and bears and giants. But it it is startling that sometimes the more a man loves God, the more he's hated by people. The more good he does, the more evil he encounters. The more devoted he is, the more despised he'll be. And that's just one of the painful paradoxes of life in the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus told his disciples, if the world hated me, guess what? They're going to hate you. 
And why is that? Because the servant is not above his master. But the frustrating thing is that when you know that you are in the right and your enemy is in the wrong and yet you are being wronged. They're in fact being exalted, it appears, and you are being humbled. That is how David felt. Now, the question that we're compelled to ask is then, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with these feelings of loneliness, rejection, depression, defeat? How do you personally overcome that? So many times as a pastor and shepherding people, I find that believers get discouraged and and defeated in some area in their life. And then they kind of go into a spiritual funk, if you will, and they don't know how to get out of it. They don't know what to do. And so they just sort of stay there indefinitely, hopelessly. What do you do? Well, I think that David models for us here precisely what to do. And that is that the first thing you do is when you have those feelings of loneliness or rejection or depression or defeat, the first step is to give honest expression of those things to God. That's what he does. Because while it is not true that David was forgotten or abandoned by God, while it is not true that his enemies were winning and he was losing, it is true that David felt that way. And so he was not wrong to give voice to these how long questions. In fact, I think this is one of the earnest prayers of all godly saints. Just out of curiosity, I did a little concordance search of this little phrase, how long? And this is a sampling of what I found. In the Psalms, how long before you rescue me? How long will you look on before you rescue me? How long will the adversary revile and the enemy spurn thy name? How long will you be angry forever before you pour out your wrath on your enemies? How long will you be angry with the prayer of thy people and not answer? How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? How long will you hide and be angry and not deliver me? How long before you return? How long shall the wicked exalt and boast in their wickedness and get away with it? Then in Isaiah 6:11, how long will I keep preaching and people not hear? In Daniel 12:6, how long till the end? Habakkuk asked, how long will I call for help? How long will I cry out, violence, violence, and you not respond? In Revelation 6.10, there are those martyrs under the throne of God crying out, how long will you refrain from avenging our blood on our enemies? How long? All of us at times ask that, don't we? How long, Lord, will the wicked men prosper? How long before justice is done? How long will our nation continue to spiral downward before you intervene? How long before the meek inherit the earth? How long till our Lord Jesus comes back? Such a prayer is not 
out of place. I believe these how long questions are godly expressions, not only of one's own despair, but ultimately of one's own desire to see God's name hallowed, his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the point is, God will never condemn us for asking how long. But guess what? He also does not have to answer. In fact, interestingly, God could justifiably volley back some how long questions of his own. My little search, I found a number that fit that context. In Exodus 10, 3, to the arrogant Pharaoh, God said, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Numbers 14, how long will this people spurn me and not believe in me in spite of all the signs which I have performed? How long shall I bear with this evil generation who are grumbling against me? In Proverbs, how long, O naive ones, will you love simplicity? Or how long will you lie down, O sluggard? Jeremiah, how long will your wicked thoughts lodge within you? How long will Jerusalem remain unclean? How long will false prophets utter their lies and people listen? And in Matthew, Jesus asks, how long shall I put up with the unbelief and perversity of this wicked generation? Listen, it's okay to ask How long, O Lord? But don't be surprised if God answers back, How long to you too? But how do you climb out of that? How do you climb out of that deep, four-walled dungeon of despair? When you feel forgotten, you feel rejected, you feel depressed, you feel defeated, what on earth, pray tell, are you to do? Well, the same thing David did, keep praying. Do not stop there. From honest expressions of despair, the next step upward is to humble explanations of dependence. Notice that in verses 3 and 4. Here David explains himself. He explains, first of all, what it is that he's asking the Lord to do, and then he explains why he's asking the Lord to do it. Notice his requests, first of all. David's petition in verse 3, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God, enlighten my eyes. And with that, he's asking for three things. Consider, answer, enlighten. Number one, regard my estate Consider literally means to look or behold. David is simply asking the Lord to stop and really look at his predicament. What an incredible lesson this is for prayer. Like a mistreated, falsely accused child, he just wants God to consider all the story. All the facts. Hear my side. He's willing 
for God to look over the entire situation confident that if he does, he will be motivated to intervene. What a beautiful thought that is for our, for our prayer life. Lord, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm not even sure I know what you ought to do, but I am sure that you will do the right thing. In fact, I'm so sure that you will do the right thing. All I'm really praying for you to do is look and see what's going on. Just appealing simply and purely to God's own sense of righteousness. That's a great model. Second, he's requesting for God to respond to my need. Answer me. Don't turn a deaf ear. Don't ignore me. My prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. The heavens are as brass. Please let this one petition squeeze through. And when it does, respond as il vous plaît. Please reply. Third, He asks, renew my outlook, renew my outlook. Verse three, consider and answer me, O Lord, my God, enlighten my eyes. One Sunday we were having lunch after our morning worship time at church. And this little, uh, this little boy, Ryan Wilson was moping around with, with a cold and his mom across the table said, yeah, whenever, uh, whenever he gets sick, we always see it in his eyes first. That's what Dave is talking about here. His eyes had drooped. They were heavy because his soul was heavy. They were swollen and dim because of his tears. And so what is he asking? He's asking the Lord to bring back the brightness to his eyes. But he's also asking for more than that. He has in mind here enlightenment. Open my spiritual eyes that I will be able to see what it is, Lord, that you are doing here and why. I want to have your perspective on this, your wisdom, your insight, your outlook through this adversity. I'll never forget the story of this pastor who went to visit this woman who uh, had just lost her husband. And he assured her that He was praying for her, and very abruptly she said, Well, what are you praying for? And he said, For God to comfort you. Um, She stopped him and she said, Listen, pray that I will have the wisdom to learn from this what God wants me to learn from this. She understood what David was getting at here. Enlighten my eyes. Help me to see what's going on here and why it's good for me. More times than not, this is how God delivers us, isn't it? Not by, not by taking our difficulty away from us, but by changing our outlook through it. Isn't that true in your life? Someone said, I asked for strength. God gave me difficulties. To make me strong. I asked for wisdom. God gave me problems to solve. I asked for prosperity. God gave me brain and brawn to work. I asked for courage. God gave me dangers to overcome. I asked for love. God gave me unloving people. 
to help. I asked for favors. God gave me opportunities. I received nothing I asked for. Everything I I needed. God renews our outlook. And that was David's request. Then notice he explains his reasons for making those requests. And again, his reasons are, are three. Lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have overcome him. Lest my adversaries rejoice when I am shaken. This is really important to see. David's spirits here were so low. I mean, his, his depression was so severe that he felt as if he could just flat out lay down and die, go to sleep and never wake up. Just, just give up. I'm just almost to the point of just wanting to sleep the sleep of death. And yet he knew that if he did that, if his, if he just gave up, his enemies would then boast that they had overcome more than that, that David's integrity was not so solid after all more than that, that David's God was not so strong after all. And so what is David doing here? He is reasoning with God. He is reasoning with God, ultimately not from selfish motives at all, is he praying, but ultimately from the desire to protect the honor of God's name. That's what's compelling him here. He is giving the theological reasons why God should answer his requests. And you need to learn to do that in your prayers. Psalm 67, 7 says, God blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear him. Do you think about that when you pray, when you pray for God to provide for you, protect you, preserve you, meet your needs, etc.? Do you have good reason for him to meet that request? David here is communicating the theological reasoning behind his prayers. He is not praying just for himself. His prayer is not a selfish one. His aim is God-centered, God's glory. A lot of times when you, when you hear other believers talk or sometimes even when you hear them pray, you don't say this, but you're thinking about saying this. Would you like a little cheese with that wine? I mean, we just, we kind of go on and on about how pitiful and how bad and how hard things are. And even in our prayers, sometimes there is a little bit of whininess in them. David is not whining here. David sees the connection between God's blessing him and God bringing glory to himself. And that is the key lesson to learn, I think, from David's model. You need to learn to pray in the same way. Have a good reason for what you're requesting, a biblical reason, a God-centered, a God-exalting reason. That's why I love to encourage people to pray with their Bibles open, to pray the Scripture, to pray according to the requests in Scripture, but also according to the reasoning of Scripture. But now you can see that David is turning the corner. He is up out of the dark dungeon of despair. He's now walking on the solid ground in the light of day, but he's not done. He's not done yet. 
From humble explanations of dependence, his final stage, his final step is to hearty expectations of deliverance. In verses 5 and 6. He's still without solid answers to his questions. He's still without answers to his troubling how long. But because he has persisted in prayer, he is now resolved to do three things. Notice what they are. Number one, to trust. To trust. I have trusted in thy loving kindness. The word trust means to put your hope, your confidence in. To put all your weight, to lean upon it with all your confidence. One of the ways that uh, Jack Hughes and myself made our way through seminary back in 88, 89, 90, and 91 was to paint houses. And we were the perfect team. He painted the high parts and I painted the low parts. But anytime we were painting a house, the exterior of a house, um, you know, there's that time where you uh, get your paint rig all ready. You get the paint in the hopper. It's all filled up, primed, ready to go. You've got your paint shield in your one hand. You've got your sprayer in the other hand. And it's time to ascend the ladder. On a windy day with a lightweight aluminum ladder, that can be fun. But you learn that you are putting all your weight on that ladder. When you lean it up against that wall, you're trusting it to hold. One time I was painting this balcony rail for a fellow who lived here somewhere in this area. I propped my ladder up against that balcony and the bottom of my ladder was on the uh, the concrete pathway on the edge of it. As I was painting, I got as far as I could go in reaching with my right hand, and so I wanted to sort of shift my weight and move the ladder over about six inches. As I did that, the bottom of the ladder fell off of the concrete pavement about three inches, just low enough for the top of the ladder to fall off the balcony. The ladder went like this, and I went like this right through it. At that point, all my weight was indeed on the ladder. But ever since then, I think I've always understood more fully what it means to trust. You are putting all of your weight and hoping with total confidence that it's going to hold. David here says, I have put my trust in, and what? God's loving kindness. That is the Old Testament word for grace. Hesed. The fullest expression, meaning of it. God's covenant-keeping loyalty and love. What better to put your trust in than that? David says, I am trusting in your loving kindness. I'm determined to do that. I would submit to you that every person in this room this morning is either cursed or blessed depending on the object of your trust jeremiah says cursed is the man who trusts in mankind blessed is the man who trusts in the lord and david was resolved to trust in god and in his 
grace. Second, he was resolved not only to trust, but to rejoice. He says, my heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. Even though it was waterlogged with tears, David made a deliberate choice to set the focus of his heart, not upon his circumstances, but rather upon his salvation. And that is the key for you as well. If you're going to rejoice your way through trials, as you're commanded to do in James chapter 1, you must fix the focus of your heart on your salvation. To rejoice means to be glad or to delight in. And the word for salvation is Yeshua, from which we get Joshua or Jesus. David here is saying, I I choose to delight in God's deliverance more than that in my deliverer himself. I always say to people, if you're waiting to rejoice until your circumstances get better, it ain't going to happen. If you learn to rejoice in your salvation, you can indeed rejoice always. Finally, David resolved... Thirdly, to sing, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Are you a singing saint? May I ask you this? When do you sing? After a trial or during? It's appropriate both times. Why should you sing? In spite of or because of a trial? It's appropriate in both. Because as terrible as David's trouble has been, look at the marvelous side effects that flow out of this. Number one, he's been forced to his knees in persistent prayer. Number two, he's been drawn to the very end of himself and to total dependence upon God alone. Number three, he has been forced to meditate upon the things that truly matter, like his salvation. And number four, he's been taught to trust and rejoice and sing. Even in this dungeon, he's saying, the Lord has dealt bountifully with me. Are you saying that about your life? Are you saying that about your lot in life right now? The Lord has dealt bountifully with me. Bountifully. He has. You just don't see it, maybe, but he has. The lesson we need to learn from this is this. When you don't know what to believe, believe in God's loving kindness. When you don't know what to think, think on God's salvation. When you don't know what to do, sing God's praise. That's the issue. I remind you again, David's questions still have not been answered. They're still not answered. And yet because he poured out his heart to God in honest expressions of despair, he was able to climb out to humble explanations of dependence and from there to climb up to hearty expectations of deliverance. And the key is to keep praying. Basically, you have a choice. You can be Urkel. I've fallen and I can't get up. Or you can be like David who learned how to get himself up. This is what I would call, Psalm 13 is what I would call biblical self-help. 
Three steps. Self-help step number one, pray. Self-help step number two, pray before you go to the bookstore. Before you call someone. Self-help step number three, pray until God changes you. That's what we need to learn to do. Charles Haddon Spurgeon wrote, I believe that when we cannot pray, it is time that we prayed more than ever. And if you answer, well, how can that be? I would say, pray to pray. Pray for prayer. Pray for the spirit of supplication. Do not be content to say, I I would pray if I could. No, but if you cannot pray, pray until you can. If your heart be cold in prayer, do not restrain prayer until your heart warms up. But pray your soul unto heat by the help of the ever-blessed Spirit who helpeth our infirmities. If the iron be hot, then hammer it. And if it be cold, then hammer it till it's heated up. But never cease in prayer for any reason. That's good, isn't it? You see, like any other worshiper, like you, like me, like any other believer, David sometimes had to get his heart in tune as well as his harp. He begins this psalm sighing and ends it singing. And it's a model for you to follow. The cocoon is good for you. The struggle required through that is good for you. Don't run, get the scissors. Persevere in prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and for the encouragement to our hearts. We pray for each person in this room this morning. You know their needs. Would you, as only you can, by the power of your spirit, minister to them? Help them to apply this truth to right where they're at right now. Help them to move from whatever turmoil they may be experiencing to confident trust to triumph. And if they're at rock bottom, I pray that they would not be in a hurry. but to be patient, to trust you, to put all their weight upon you, to cast all their cares upon you, for you care for them. Dismiss us with your grace and mercy and peace. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.